Welcome to Straight from the Shack with Dart. Tonight I'm reading from Moments of Impact by Tom Wilson. The Grumman Groose aircraft we were on that morning, the window near the, nearest the tail of the plane formed part of the door used to access the aircraft. The plane had small wheels underneath the fuselage to allow the craft to roll on pavement, but it was designed to take off and land on water. This picture was taken on a previous flight at the dock of Tobin Inlet, which was to be our final destination. One of the many southern Gulf Islands is visible in the background. Roaring through the night and straight into hell. 10 a.m. Peter pushed a button and the two large propellers turned to life. Both of the large 450 horsepower engines quickly barked to life. He looked back to us and motioned to ensure we had our seatbelts on and our earplugs in. These World War II airplanes were not built with passenger comfort in mind. When the engines were at full power, their roar was so loud in the passenger cab that the earplugs were mandatory. With everyone buckled up and in compliance, the engines began to rev up and the plane started to roll float forward. The Grim and Goose float plane is designed to take off from water. On land, they wobble around awkwardly like the birds they're named after. There's a small cove in the Pacific Ocean alongside Vancouver International Airport and a security gate just off the edge of the runway that allows planes to access the launch. We cleared the gate and, like a goose, started to waddle down the gentle descent of the launch ramp towards sea. An airport security camera captured an image of our plane launching onto the ocean. I looked out the window on the right side of the plane, searching for a small island about two kilometers to the southwest of the airport. On previous flights, I'd been nervous about the plane gaining enough altitude to clear the island. It felt like we hadn't been much higher than the trees as we passed by. The fog was so thick on this morning that the trees and islands were nearly hidden from view. 10.13 a.m. The plane was now fully floating in the water, turning north and starting to prepare for takeoff. The engines roared to full power, reverberating loudly through the passenger cabin. As our speed increased, the plane began to achieve some lift, making hard bounce, bounces off the char- choppy water as it struggled for separation from the sea. Every second made me more anxious. I just wanted to be high in the air and out of danger. As I focused on the strain of the engines, the noise of water rushing under my feet subsided. We stopped bouncing off the waves of the top of the waves, and I started to relax as we continued to climb. I peered out my window on the left side and let out a sigh of relief as the island had been watching for appeared underneath us as it always did. We'd officially made another successful takeoff. It was now time to shift my focus onto the uncomfortable flight ahead. I pulled the hood of my sweater over my head and started to shift around my seat, trying to find the best angle for leg comfort. At six feet tall, there isn't enough room in the aisle for me to stretch my legs out. So I brought my knees close to my chest, angled them to the left, and sandwiched them in between my body and the seat in front of me. My hoodie up, the window was not cold to touch, so I rested my head against it and closed my eyes for a nap. I remember it felt like being seated in the perfect fetal position, my head resting forward and my knees brought to my chest. 
The next 15 minutes of the flight was uneventful. I would occasionally shift around, open my eyes, look down at the ocean waves roughing, rushing by only a couple hundred feet beneath us. We were flying low, but this is what the pilot had prepared us, so I just closed my eyes and continued to try to relax. Without warning, smashing the monotone of the flight was a very loud sound. It sounded like grinding metal. My face was still pressed against the window, and as soon as I opened my eyes, I could see trees. Trees right outside my window. They were close, too close. I could have reached out and touched them. The grinding, the loud grinding noise was the sound of trees slashing away at the underbelly of the plane, stripping away the landing gear, disemboweling the plane, and spilling our luggage into the air. Before my mind had time to fully process what was going on, I was thrown hard, forward, very hard, into the seat in front of me and knocked unconscious. 10.32 a.m. Impact Still in the fetal position, I remember being forced forward into the cushioned back of the seat in front of me before passing out. It's the last thing I remembered of our flight. From seeing trees to going unconscious was a brief moment. It was over as fast as it started. Not one person on board flight that flight screamed. Not one person yelled, hang on, or holy shit. Not a sound. One second we were flying. The next instance there was darkness, fire, and death. Our plane had been flying at a low level because of the fog. Low cloud and limited visibility. The only understanding of what happened at this point is the pilot lost his bearing in the fog, misjudged the flight path, and flew directly into side of an uninhabited island. If we'd only been 200 feet to the left or 50 feet higher, everything would have been fine. As the treetops started to rip into the body of the aircraft, the pilot lost his ability to control it. The investigation report showed that he did have time to apply full power to the engine and pull back on the stick in effort to gain altitude quickly, but wing damage, gravity, and momentum took over. Our plane crashed into the side of the mountain at approximately 150 miles an hour in a very violent manner. The moment of impact on eight lives. This journey and the lives of the other seven ended here. Out of nowhere, in a blink of an eye, their lives were over. There wasn't any indication to anyone that their lives would soon be over. No opportunity to say goodbye to loved ones. No time to say any of the things they would have wanted to. Just immediate darkness. Life can be taken in an instant, and witnessing this firsthand is the most disturbing thing that you could ever imagine. This moment of impact changed my life, as it did for many people who loved my fellow travelers dearly. This moment was unfair, tragic, and ruthless. This was the hardest moment of my life and the beginning of a whole new journey for me. Man on Fire After being knocked unconsciousness, there's a slow grogginess to regaining consciousness. I did not regain consciousness this way. I was forced out of unconsciousness into a world of immediate pain and panic like nothing I could have ever imagined. With my seatbelt on and my hoodie still pulled over my head, I shot awake, screaming in pain. 
I was covered in aviation fluid, fueled from head to toe, and the fuel was burning. I was man on fire. Before I describe what happened next, I want you to try and understand the mental and emotional state of mind that comes with being on fire. The pain of being burned alive is obvious, but it's the state of mind that is hard to understand without experiencing it. Panic is defined as a sudden overwhelming fear that produces hysterical and irrational behavior. Panic inhibits one's ability to follow directions or think logically. I can tell you that when I awoke, I was in such a state of panic that I only can describe this as a complete lack of sanity. I was on fire. I was screaming at the top of my lungs in pain. My hands were burning. My body was burning. I could see flames dancing all around me and in front of my face. The intensity of pain was indescribable. It felt like the most amount of pain a human could possibly endure. Second by second, it got worse and continued in an upward spiral of intensity. The pain fed the panic. The panic fed emotion reactions and made me more irrational. The message your brain gets is simply that you're on fire and the pain will soon kill you. You need to get out of the flame now. The sheer urgency of this message is overwhelming and that contributes to the panic, which in turn inhibits your ability to act. Screaming and flailing, I tried search, tearing at the seat belt with my burning hands. I was fighting like an animal, just grabbing and pulling at it, anything to get out of the fire now. My mind was racing, yet my hands would not function logically. It was an intense state of panic. My brain could remember how to unclip the seat belts, but your body could not follow the directions to do so. My brain recognized that I had to do something fast, so I forced myself to sit up straight in the seat, stretch out my arms, and lift my hands towards the sky to get them out of the fire for an instant of relief. I tried to mentally calm myself just for a fraction of a second to regain control of my physical actions. I needed to get enough mental control to undo the seatbelt or it was over. I was about to be burned to death strapped into my seat. That self-talk, talk, that fraction of a second that I took to raise my arms to the sky and focus on commanding the physical actions of my hands was a moment of impact. That fraction of a second was enough. I forced my hands back down into flames, still wildly screaming, but by this time, with a concentrated effort of undoing the clip, I grabbed at the metal buckle and it released. I shot straight up out of my seat and directly into a panicked run screaming, burning, losing my mind. Undoing a seatbelt was about the most complicated task I could perform in that state of panic. If there had been more of the cabin left to maneuver through, I might have been trapped inside. The cabin of the aircraft around me had been completely destroyed, so there was nothing to impede me. I was able to run directly into the forest. There was no thought of a path or a direct, particular direction to run. My immediate instinct was simply to move as fast as possible to get away from the flames. I leaned forward and started running straight ahead. My hoodie was still pulled over my head. It too was soaked in burning aviation fuel. As I started to run from the wreckage and pick up speed, the flames from the rim of my hoodie turned inward. The panic was telling my brain to make my feet run. But in doing so, the motion created a wind that was pushing flame directly into my face. 
Still running, I grabbed up my flaming hoodie and wrestled it over my head and off my body. Screaming, still burning, I next realized my jeans were also on fire. So I started to jump around madly, slapping at the flames with my raw, pulpy hands until the flames were out. With all the flames of my body now extinguished, I stopped jumping and just stood there, naked from the waist up, armed raised to the sky, screaming. I screamed and I screamed and I screamed longer and harder than I ever thought possible. I was in so much pain. I was now out of immediate danger, but badly burnt and poorly clothed for a cold November day. People often ask me what I was thinking through all of this. The answer is quite simple. In that kind of situation, you don't think. You only react. My brain had been so overloaded with panic, it hadn't even registered yet that we'd been in a plane crash. I didn't know anything other than I was on fire and an intense, excruciating pain. In that situation, my brain didn't have the capacity to question where I was or why I was on fire. The panic and the pain were robbing me of any rational thought. Numb from the shock, I staggered about 30 meters from the crash site and stood facing into the forest. Then I heard a loud explosion behind me. I felt both heat and pressure waves against my back. Oddly, the explosion really didn't get much of my attention at all. I was barely aware of it and still fighting to gain control of my thoughts and action. As time passed, the panic started to slowly subdive, allowing some rational thought to return. It was like fighting to get out of a foggy semi-conscious of a nightmare. It seemed like an eternity. I held my hands in front of my face, staring at them in horror. The skin of my fingers and most of the back of my hands were completely burned off. There were large chunks of burning, burnt flesh hanging down from the back of my hands and my fingers. There were strains of skin hanging down in front of my eyes. The tip of my nose was that same meaty red as my hands. My face was generating as much pain as my hands, so even without a mirror, I knew it was severely burnt as well. Looking down, I noticed an eight-inch gash across my stomach. The gash was not generating enough pain compared to anything else to be of a concern. As my senses began to work again, I started to notice the overpowering stench of something rotting. It's hard to describe the smell of burning flesh, but knowing that smell was coming from my own body made me feel sick. Without the overloaded message of panic, my brain began to slowly free up to process my surroundings. I started to feel a cold breeze. It was the middle of November. I was on a coastal island off Vancouver, BC, Canada. It was only 8 degrees Celsius or 43 Fahrenheit. Drizzling rain, foggy and windy. I was seriously burnt and wearing only jeans and work boots. I started to shiver still in shock and trying to sort out things in my head. What the hell just happened? The pain, sight, and smell of my own burning flesh was still front and center, but I started to think about what was going on. I remembered I'd been in a plane, and that there were trees outside my window. I remembered the crash and the fire all around me. I started to look around and recognized I was in a thickly forced and rugged mountain area. 
There was a lot of smoke from a number of small fires burning through the trees. I walked towards the largest fire to see what I could find of the plane and others. To the left of the wreckage site, a rough a rock bluff went straight up for 20 meters high. A few meters to the right, a cliff went down sharply for another 25 meters or so. The crash site was amongst trees half a meter in diameter. On the approaching path to the crash site, there was a trail of fire and trees that had their tops snapped off. As soon as I saw the fractured burning wreck of the passenger cabin amongst the rugged terrain, I knew nobody else had survived the crash. I should have not have been able to survive the crash. The horror of the moment has caused my subconscious either to block or erase that part of the videotape in my mind. I cannot remember anything I saw of the others, if anything. I just remembered that I started to scream again. The emotion of the loss of my friends was crushing. I jumped around repeatedly screaming, no, no, at the top of my lungs. I screamed and screamed again until I was out of strength to scream anymore. Spent, drained and exhausted, I just stood there at the edge of the crash site, crying uncontrollably. The loss of my friends and co-workers, the insanity of the situation was overwhelming. This was no bad dream. It was a living nightmare. I was bad, hurt badly, cold, afraid, and alone in the middle of the des deserted forest. This is what's left of the passenger cab of the aircraft atop Thornby Island. In the top left corner of the picture is a blue pontoon from the tip of the left wing. The center area of the picture is the cabin the bottom right corner of the picture is where the right wing should be. The cock should be at, pit should be at the top right and the tail at the bottom left. The middle frame of my seat is visible in the middle of the picture. Thank you for joining me for Straight from the Shack with Dart. Please know that you can find me on YouTube or where your favorite podcasts are find, found. Just look for straight from the shack with dart till next time be safe